Ian Thorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold and a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on a third. He's got it. 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal. A perfect score. 10.0 for Dante Tabanici. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen it. Welcome to Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast, as we're continuing in a series of interviews where we're discovering new sports that we've never had the opportunity to talk about before, and there couldn't be anything more exciting, especially as a Canadian, to be able to talk to our first ever curler here on Off the Podium. And we honestly couldn't have picked a better curler to start with than Jill Officer, who was on the 2014 Sochi undefeated gold medal winning team in curling. And this was particularly exciting for me because uh, as we have talked to other athletes from my home province of Manitoba before, even my home city of Winnipeg, this is the first time I was able to talk to an athlete who was actually in Winnipeg at the time of doing the interview. And it was still done remotely, unfortunately, but uh, I, I almost could have just yelled the questions out the window and had Jill respond by yelling back, but uh, obviously much more convenient to do it over a call. Jill's able to talk to us a lot about the sport of curling, how she got into it, how she actually clicked with her teammate Jennifer Jones at a very young age when they started playing together, uh, all the way through her career, world championships, national championships, all the way up to uh, the obviously the big main event, the Olympics in Sochi, where they went undefeated and won the gold medal. So let's get right into it. Here is our first curler ever on off the podium, Jill Officer. <laughs> We are thrilled today to offer you a new interview with an athlete in a sport we've never actually talked about before. We've talked a lot about this sport, but never had the chance to actually pick the brain of somebody who's competed in this. Uh, today we have an Olympic gold medalist from Sochi, multiple-time world champion, and a fellow Winnipegger, which is very exciting for me, Jill Officer. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, happy to have any opportunity to talk about curling. I mean, you've been in this sport for so long, too. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing when we talk to a lot of athletes is that they typically get into a sport, you know, when they're very young. And just, to, you know, just doing a little bit of research here, I mean, you started competing professionally, you know, including with one of your teammates you won the gold medal with you know, all the way back when you were a teenager. I mean, but is that where you started curling or had you had a little bit of experience? How did you actually get into the sport? Uh, you know, it, it tends to be, uh, at least right now, that curling, people who get into curling, it's typically a family connection. So uh, that's exactly what it was for me. My mom was a coordinator of a junior curling league at a curling club near our house. Um, she played two or three times a week and then uh, coordinated the junior league on Sunday mornings. So um, my brother and sister also played in that junior league. So I was always hanging around the curling club with my mom, or I was hanging around the hockey rink with my dad, who was um, a competitive hockey coach. And my brother also played hockey. So I was at one rink or the other. Um, I always say, I think I just maybe had a little more natural ability for curling versus, mm -hmm. uh, versus hockey. Plus I actually was on figure skates for most of my young life. So 
Um, yeah, I, I, I ended up starting more regularly when I was about 10, but I had, had typically been around the club and on the ice for um, quite a period of time by that point. And um, my mom was kind of my first coach and put a little team together for me. And we, um, you know, played in some bond spiels and, you know, I got to hang out with my friends and stuff like that. And it was about when I was almost 16 or almost 16 that um, Jennifer Jones, who I ended up curling with for 23 years, she asked me when I was about 16 years old if I wanted to uh, to play with her. So, um, yeah, it, it kind of spiraled from there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And did you have any other sports that you were looking to compete in uh, at the time? Or, or were you pretty much set, you know, curling, this is what I want to stick with? I wouldn't say that I looked at curling like this was what I wanted to stick with, at least not at that 10, 12, 13 year old sort of stage. Um, I knew I loved curling, but I also did a lot of other sports. I didn't necessarily compete in the, like, I mean, I played soccer, which, you know, you're competing in games. Uh, I loved playing soccer and I actually played soccer into my, in like, um, into my twenties for a long time. And then uh, I also played, uh, or I did gymnastics. I twirled the baton oh, really? <laughs> for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, and I, and I figure skated, I got all my badges for figure skating. And that was the point where I kind of had to choose whether I was going to going to train and compete as a figure skater or not, which was just never seemed to be a consideration for me as much as I loved uh, figure skating as well. Um yeah, so it was just more so having the opportunity to be exposed to a number of different sports. But uh, again, I think the curling, there was just something about it. And uh, I got to hang out with my friends more with curling. And um, yeah, and I, again, just a little bit of more natural ability, I think, for for that sport. And so I started getting into that a little more seriously in my mid-teens or so. And especially when Jennifer asked me to play. Mm-hmm. You know, my only experience actually curling uh, was in the third grade. Uh, the school I was in, they actually had a curling rink set up outside during the winter. And uh, I, I can imagine as a 10-year-old, I mean, you're, you're probably not necessarily following and learning all the rules. Because I know for us, uh, you know, when we had gym class, it was, all right, everybody slide on the ice and let's throw our bodies into it. I mean, but but having a mother who was in the sport, I mean, did you learn the rules all right off the right off the hop? That's a good question. I, I, I guess maybe I did because when I was 10, I started playing in the league. So I would have had to, to know to a certain extent. Um, I also had the opportunity to curl in the, in the, you know, the field out in the back of my elementary school. My, mm-hmm. uh, my gym teacher in elementary school was a big proponent of curling and he did the jam pail curling, you know, with the jam cans and the, you know, the ice out in the back and the painted rings. And, and I have great memories of that too. I, I think, I was probably the only one at that age in my uh, in my school or in my grade that had actually been on real curling ice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I guess I just knew the rules because I was around and and I I started playing at ten years old. Um, I, I don't necessarily remember specifically learning about them, probably just because I was around it all the time. 
it's just ingrained in you <laughs> from a very young age. <laughs> yeah. That's the benefit you have over me. I mean, I could have been in the Olympics, <laughs> but <laughs> definitely no chance to be in the Olympics in any sport. <laughs> uh, now, now, when you did get chosen uh, by Jennifer Jones, I mean, had she been uh, competing at a higher level at that point or was it still just a lot of local stuff? Yeah, so I, when I when Jennifer Jones asked me to play with her, I I was still trying to find my way to a provincial championship. I was skipping my team, and we had actually played against Jennifer a couple of times, and never had uh, you know the success of beating her or or whatever team she was on. Nor did we have the success of getting to the provincials. So uh, when she asked me to play, she had already won a provincial championship. So not only had she competed in a couple of, of provincials, but she had won a provincial junior championship and had competed at the Canadian championship. So I knew of her and I knew very well of her. So I was a bit starstruck actually, when she <laughs> pulled me aside and asked me if I, if I would consider, uh, you know, joining a team with her. So um, I, I could have said yes right away, but at that age, it's like, you know, a, 15 or 16 years old it's like well I should probably talk to my parents and yeah. you know I'm gonna need to use the car a little more and you know it was a bit a little bit bigger of a commitment so um I talked to my parents and I got back to her and uh I, I can't believe what that moment led to honestly like just that mm-hmm. moment of her asking me to join forces and uh you know thinking of what we went on to accomplish it's kind of crazy yeah, I mean, that that could have been like the, the quickest impulse reaction a 16-year-old ever had. Is like, yes, yes, <laughs> no other questions. And then the parents asked the questions later on. That might have been a little bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that could have been uh, definitely a problem. But my parents were super supportive and they always have been. And um, yeah, I was just really lucky that uh, they saw value in, in sport as well. At that point, uh, you know, was curling an Olympic sport? Because it didn't become an Olympic sport until uh, Nagano in 98. So... Uh, what was like the peak that you thought you could reach at that point? Well, yeah, that that's a great question because I think that uh, it's just so normal now that the that curling is part of the Olympics. But you're right when that at that moment when Jennifer Jones asked me to curl with her, there was never a goal of trying to get to the Olympics because it wasn't an Olympic sport. Like that would have been around. 91 I think it was like 91 92 I think was the first year that Jennifer and I played together um I don't remember exactly when it curling was announced as an official sport I know it was a demonstration sport in 1988 and it was a demonstration sport in 92 and 94 maybe or 92 at least anyway so it wasn't really something that I I thought about because it just didn't seem to be a reality. The idea at the time was, oh yeah, let's see if we can win a provincial junior championship. And boy, it would be great to compete at the Scotties one day. Like, you know, watching all these women play at this high level at the Scotties tournament of hearts was just, you know, it was, it was amazing. And uh, so no, in answer to your question, it wasn't like going to the Olympics was not something that I thought about at that time. It wasn't really until, um, you know, we had the opportunity to meet Sandra Schmerler and her team, who they they were the, the first ones to win from Canada. They won the Olympic gold medal at the at the initial games in 1998 in Nagano that you mentioned. Um, and I don't think it was until we actually got to know them a little bit that I started thinking, okay, maybe this is something that you know could happen down the road. Uh- I'm not going to say anything yet just in case we jinx ourselves, but uh, we are hoping to speak to another uh, curler who was there 
during 98. Now, I'm very interested to find out what it was like, you know, uh, to be in the first Olympics ever. But I mean, were you a spectator of the sport? Do you remember watching in Nagano the first time? Yes, I remember. I remember watching the Olympic trials, which took place in Brandon, Manitoba, um, uh, it, like to qualify the teams to go to uh, the Olympics in, Na- in Nagano. So I remember watching Sandra Schmiller and her team and Mike Harris and his team win win those games, and and then they went on to compete at the at the games in Nagano. And I mean, you know, with the time change and stuff, I'm thinking I must have not been able to watch, uh, you know, a ton, but you see a lot of replays and stuff like that. So I certainly do remember watching. Um, and, and by that point, we had already had the opportunity to have some interaction with Sandra Schmerler and her team. So to have that, like, to have the opportunity to get to know them a little bit and then watch them play in the Olympics was like that was just like that was crazy to me I mean you know I remember looking up to their team and they were so kind to us and um you know over the over the few years that we got to know them and so to watch them go on and win the Olympics was just I don't know it was just there was something about that that just made me go okay maybe this isn't you know maybe I could strive for this you know Mm -hmm. yeah I I can very well remember watching I mean, that was basically that and snowboarding is the new sports was like myself and my brother like oh we got to watch like every moment of this because we'd never seen it before I mean it also the thing is with curling is that I wouldn't say it's considered a, a, a you know an obscure fringe sport but I mean it's especially coming from Canada I guess specifically Manitoba you know it is a bigger deal but uh, there are obviously a lot of people at the time just didn't and probably still to this day don't understand. I remember in Sochi, there was a lot of uh, commentary on the fact, maybe you could speak to that later, about the even the crowd who was there on site just not understanding the game. Uh, now, just to kind of start with, I mean, you have four people on a team, but there are big differences, even though you'll all sort of take your turns. I mean, can you kind of run through the, the positions and, uh, you know, what uh, everybody's different duties are? Yeah. Um, well, yes, you mentioned there's four people on a team. Um, there's the lead or the first thrower, uh, the second, the third, which is also sometimes called the vice. And then there's the skip, which, you know, a lot of people would compare the skip to, uh, you know, a quarterback in football or maybe even a goalie in, in hockey. Um, they're kind of the ones that, you know, they're the ones that have the last opportunity to, um, uh, you know, score the points for, for the team. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the roles with the positions have changed uh, over the years because there's been some rule changes in our sport that uh, have made it more interesting, have made it more strategic, and have made it more uh more fun to watch because there's 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 more involved uh so so you know the the lead in the second you know years ago you know it was it was a lot more simple there was you know you hit a rock out of play type thing but now mm-hmm. the lead is super important for for sort of setting up the end you know putting the rocks in a good position to start out the end the second is also sort of part of that builds on it the third then builds on it again and then you hopefully if you're if your first three players have made you know good precise shots then hopefully your skip has uh you know a good like an easier type shot to mm-hmm. score uh a number of points so and basically like if 
people that are listening, if they if they can think of a bullseye from, um, uh, you know, maybe if you don't know much about curling, you think about it like a bullseye from a from a target, like from archery. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like that, and we're we're trying to get our rocks closest to the middle. Um, that target is called the house, and we try to get our rocks closest to the middle. And the more rocks we have closer to the middle than anybody else. Uh, that's the more points that we get. <laughs> it's uh, that's a, a very simple way to explain it. <laughs> I mean, you, you competed in so many tournaments over the years, but I would guess the the world championships. Uh, you know, I guess the first year world championships probably would have been like the 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 peak at that point. Uh, which year was the first time you won the world championship? The first time we won the world championship was two thousand and eight. The first time we competed in the world championship was two thousand and five. Um, so yeah, like we went, we went to the world championship in 2000, we went to the Scotties, which is like our national championship. We went to the Scotties in 2005 and that was our first Scotties and we won it on, you know, what most people would claim to be the the best shot ever seen in, in such a pressure moment in, in our sport. Um, it was super exciting. And then we went on to compete at the world championships and it, you know, uh, lost in, in the playoffs and it was very challenging world championships. So it's not really the one that sticks out to me as the best or most fun. Mm. Um, but yeah, the first one that we won was actually in 2008 and that was in Canada and it was a complete, completely different than the one we played in, in 2005. So the, yeah, it was, it was, it was so, it was so amazing. And, and I remember, that world championship was sort of the first world championship that uh, a team from China had done so extremely well. Like that's who we played in the, in the final of the worlds that year. And three years earlier, they weren't even, they were barely making it to barely qualifying for the world championship. So um, yeah, I, it, it, the, the first one that we won was really uh, yeah, it, it was great. It was, it was amazing. And, and only one team gets to represent each country is that right yeah one team represents each country and each country determines that in in a different way some 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 countries have playoffs for uh declaring their teams like like we do we have a national championship that declares our teams and then there's other um other countries that maybe don't have the same depth of curling in their country and so they may only have one team that has any sort of experience or chance. Mm -hmm. uh, And so they may just end up being selected. So it just sort of depends on uh, the things that each country is dealing with as to how they declare their representative. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it it seems like there are certain countries who will send the same team every single every single year every single world championships every single olympics uh but it, it's always such a such a nail biter here in canada because there is such a huge depth with the, the talent and uh you know we'll, we'll get there eventually but i mean even uh missing out on um uh, pyeongchang i mean i remember kind of being shocked at that but i'm like but but look at all the other teams there are you know uh with uh with canada i mean have you experienced that frustration of you know we were this close to making it to a world championships or making it to an olympics i mean you know even if you want to speak now about uh, pyeongchang and uh having to miss out just by a hair yeah really like um we lost in the semifinal of our olympic trials to go to pyeongchang and and i think that was uh you know in the big picture i i've had an amazing career in curling and it and it's 
you know, on one hand, it's like, how, how can I complain about not going to the Olympics, right? What, uh, in, to Pyeongchang, when in fact we went to Sochi and we won a gold medal, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you get the taste of going to the Olympics and, and that there's only one, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, there's only one team in our sport that has successfully defended their Olympic title. And that was Annette Norberg's team from Sweden mm. who won in 20, 2006 and again in 2010 in Vancouver. Um, and, and I really wanted to do that. Like yeah. that was my personal thing was like, I really wanted to defend our Olympic title. So when we lost the semifinal of our Olympic trials to go to Pyeongchang, um, you know, it was really, it was disappointing to me for two reasons. One that, that we wouldn't, you know, I felt like our team was, was good enough and we'd had the success. I felt like, um, you know, we could have, I don't want to say easily, but I felt like we could have defended our title. Like mm. we had put in, you know, the work, I felt like we were good enough. And, and then the other part to me, what for me personally was just that I knew I was nearing the end of my career and that that was probably the last chance that I would get mm -hmm. to compete at the Olympics. So it, it was disappointing, but I remember a fellow curler saying to me, well, aren't you just grateful that you had the opportunity to play at the Olympics? Like a lot of people don't get that. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, I, but that also made me want to compete at the Olympics again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So it, it was for me, I think it was, it was tough to lose, uh, to go to Pyeongchang, um, you know, but I, I'm kind of a believer a lot of times that things happen for a reason. And I, and I, I look back and I, and I just think what sort of impact that might've, I know what, what winning the Olympics the first time and the impact it had on my life um, to do it again, it would be, uh, it, it would, it would have been a challenge in some ways, not to say that I wouldn't have taken it if, if, if we had gone and competed yeah. there again. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, one of the things I think that uh, people don't understand about curling is when you're looking at it on the surface, you're like, okay, so they stand there, they, they study, they throw a rock. And I think for the longest time, people had this misperception that like curlers are like bowlers, you know, it's, you don't necessarily have to be in shape. But I mean, when you start to look at like the athletes that go into these Olympics, and I, I remember uh, it, it was either Sochi or Pyeongchang, uh, once social media really started picking up and following a lot of athletes and seeing like their workouts and all that like curlers have to be in incredible shape. I mean, what is the training process physically like to actually get ready to compete at a high level? Yeah, so I'll preface all this by saying that my career was long enough and, and I I sort of went through a variety of changes in, in the game, uh, you know, and one of the ones which we already spoke about in terms of, you know, the our sport becoming an Olympic sport in 1998. So when I started curling, like, there wasn't really a lot of uh, there was really no focus on the fitness aspect and all that sort of all that sort of stuff. And then when it became an Olympic sport, it meant we had more resources. It meant we had more funding, but with it came expectation to do a certain amount of things. So, you know, over my career, I think it was actually after we won the the nationals, the Scotties in in two thousand and five, that we really saw. Um, resources coming our way and and a and, and a focus for us to you know get in shape not and not to say that we weren't in shape especially with how much we played but it was just you know the off-ice training is just a, a different aspect of it so we really got into it and um 
really it really sort of became part of the job it became part of the gig it became part of the expectation and I think that that was important because I think over time it improved my ability to sweep it improved my ability to throw uh like to throw rocks at a high speed um and it it improved my um um, endurance, mm-hmm. you know, and so you really started to see the effects of it, and and that started to increase a lot in the sport. Um, and we we've really seen that the last maybe two cycles, especially um, that you know that it has such an impact. And yeah, it's just so in terms of the training that we've done, or that's important for curling, uh, it's really sort of a whole variety of things. Uh, we do a lot of uh, single leg and single arm stuff because we have imbalances. Uh, usually if you're sweeping, you have a dominant arm. Uh, and then when you're sliding out of the hack, you have one leg that's better at balance. The other one's sometimes better at power. So you're trying to, you're trying to minimize those balance, those imbalances in the gym sometimes, uh, with, while focusing on balance and, uh, strength and power for getting out of the hack a lot of core strength like a ton of core mm-hmm. stuff for sweeping um, back like lats and uh, shoulders and triceps triceps are are huge a lot of a lot of curlers have one tricep bigger than the other uh, because <laughs> of having a dominant uh, a dominant arm like usually your down arm is your is your dominant arm for sweeping so it's really a whole a whole body thing with extra focus on you know uh power out of the hack balance and that that core stuff for for sweeping is really 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 huge yeah you know on the surface it would look like okay you're sweeping but i mean you you know you're from winnipeg i'm from winnipeg i mean we spend uh uh, seven months of the year with snow on the ground. <laughs> Lucky it's yep. almost at the end of March and I've got like a small patch of ice in the back. But I mean, I spent so much <laughs> of the time in the winter just shoveling. And y- you're shoveling for five minutes and you come in and your arms are sore for three days. You know, you're wiped out. And I can't even imagine the amount of sweeping you have to do and the speed that you do it. Like how draining that could be. I mean, uh, have you ever suffered like an injury and, uh, you know, whether it was during a match or even in training? And then how does that affect you? Yeah, mostly mostly in curling, I think it's a lot of chronic uh, problems. Usually, we see in curling, we see a lot of knee problems, uh, sometimes hip problems, or hip problems that cause knee problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, shoulders, a lot of shoulders, and uh, some. Uh, I've had some back issues and shoulder issues and hip problems. Those those have kind of all been my chronic things. Um, I remember my shoulder becoming a problem when I was curling with Jennifer Jones, actually in the first couple of years, because I put so much effort into the sweeping, but didn't know enough about, um, you know, positioning or the, the best way to function. And so I had some bad habits that caused me some problems that ultimately got better over the years, but we're still always, always sort of nagging. But those are some of the common things that, uh, that we see for sure in curling. And I will say too, that, um, you know, for people who don't know the sport and, you know, a lot of people look at it and think it must be easy and things like that. And, and I can understand that. I'll also say that I have taught a lot of athletes how to curl Mm -hmm. athletes, like elite athletes, bobsledders, skeleton uh football hockey players and 
it doesn't matter what kind of athlete uh, we've taught to curl. They always come back the next day or two days later and they're like, wow, I didn't know that I had those groin yeah. muscles. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that I had those muscles. Like, you know, curling uses a lot of the, the deep stability muscles, I call them too. And, uh, you know, so I would encourage people to go out and try it because it's, it's a good lifelong sport to be involved in and, uh, and it's a great social sport too. Yeah, there's a reason why it's taught in gym class in Manitoba schools. <laughs> it is very physically active, especially in the winter when there's not much else you could really do to stay physically active. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, now you were with Jennifer Jones, uh, I think the longest of uh, anybody. Uh, and there have been, I guess, you know, little shakeups here and there. You know, uh, Caitlin Laws comes in at one point, Don McCune comes in another point. Uh, but how does it actually come together as far as like forming the team? Like at the time you started, you know, you're still a teenager. Jennifer Jones could probably just ask somebody, but once you get to that higher level where you're competing at the Scotties and uh, the world championships, is there more to it? Like, does a coach have a say? Does team Canada have any say? Um, yeah, that's the, that's the really interesting thing about curling is I, I sometimes say that we're stuck between an amateur sport and a professional sport. Uh, so in, in curling, it really comes down to the teams and who they believe uh, is going to be the best fit. I think that, and I think because we're only four members, that uh, the dynamic between those four members has, is really important. Um, so in, in curling, it's typically the, the, teammate, the t- team members that make the changes, the team members that decide who might be the best uh, for a certain position and, and things like that. And it's not that we... Uh, you know, when we get to that high level, we can certainly take in, we certainly would take input from our coaches and from Team Canada coaches, Team Canada personnel, uh, like with the national team program, you know, we would take all sorts of input. And I know we did take input in a variety of ways, but it does come down to, uh, to the teammate, to the team members. And I think there's sometimes a perception out there that um, it falls on the skip. And it, I think it just falls on the skip because they're also the ones that get the most media attention, mm-hmm. but truly on our team, any sort of choice or decision that we made around that was truly a team decision. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's never an, e- it was never an easy decision. Um, you know, and you weigh the pros and cons and you try to figure out what is best for your team. You try to make the best decisions that you can with the information that you have. And, uh, you know, we, I remember we consulted our sports psychologists as well, uh, you know, through those times that we made tough team decisions. And um, yeah, it's it's kind of the, the professionalism of our sport now. Um, and yet it, it falls on the teams to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you would probably hear some debate on what's better. Um, I, I kind of like having, not that I like having to do, you know, having to let teammates go, but I like that the team has that responsibility. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want that to fall on, on somebody else's shoulders. Um, that, that, that's something that came up, uh, you know, I think it was in Salt Lake city or Turin. Um, one of the Olympics where, um, uh, Wayne Gretzky, I think was still involved with the, the men's hockey team. 
the early criticism is that they they took so many losses, but it was put together kind of by a board. You didn't have like this consensus. I think that's one of the things that curling does have over hockey is that you do have a say in who you're playing with. I mean, I, I can imagine if if they just put this team together. Well, here's the four best that we think they're. Right. You could have somebody that you just don't get along with. Somebody that just doesn't understand your your rhythm, your dynamic. I mean, you don't have to name names or anything, but I'm, I'm sure you've had some teammates over the years. You're like, you know, this just isn't working. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. And, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes, um, sometimes teams outgrow themselves too, right? Like, uh, and, and I, when I think back to the experiences that we had, I think there's just sometimes where it's, where it's like, you need, you need a change. Um, and, and, you know, like, yeah, that I always thought that about the, the, the hockey as well is like, you know, they would come together for a very short period of time before before the the olympic games and and there was just no time to gel no time to bond and and i don't know that i I think they do it a little bit differently now probably because they've learned from that but i i really think with the small that the size the small size of a curling team the dynamics are really really important on a curling team and i think they're like you know, we could get into this debate too, but I, I think they're probably more important on a fem- on a women's team, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I, and I have talked to curlers about this. I've always said that men have this ability to, you know, um, kind of have a debate or ha- have it out with each other. And then they sit down and have a beer five minutes later and women just, we're a little bit different in that way. Like we just, you know, we hold on to things maybe a little longer or it takes us longer to sort of move through those emotions of a certain situation. And so the dynamics on a men's team versus a women's team are also different. Um, but because it's such a small group, you really have to take that into consideration. And we have seen in the past in our sport where not as much in, in Canada, really, um, but we have seen some countries make a make selections for a team and it has never worked out for them. It's never been sort of successful in, in selecting certain players to be part of a team. Uh, I just think the dynamic is too important in curling. And so um, I, I, I still like the fact that the curling teams get to decide who's on their team and who they play with. Going to Sochi for the first time, and when you qual, what was the feeling like when you're like, okay, I'm going to be an Olympian? And did you always have that aspiration? You know, one of those things I want to check off my list is I want to be an Olympian. Well, yeah, like like we spoke about earlier, it wasn't really a consideration to go to the Olympics when I was in junior curling because it it was just kind of creeping up on on um, you know the 1998 games where it was an official sport, so it wasn't really consideration at that time. But then after the 98 games happened and, you know, things, you know, I, um, you know, our team started to improve and compete in, in different capacities. And, you know, you start thinking about it a little bit more. And then I think certainly once we won the uh, Scotties, the national championship in 2005, that actually qualified us to compete in our first Olympic trials event, which is essentially like our a national championship to go to the Olympics, but you qualify for it differently. You qualify for it um you know, based on rankings more so. So um, I think when we qualified for that first Olympic trials, that's when it really kind of started to become, because it's like, okay, we just won the Scotties. Like, you know, we could play these teams and and win the Olympic trials maybe too, right? And, um, you know, our first couple of goes at the Olympic trials were were a bit of a challenge. So, um, you know, we made the team changes in through there. And then Caitlin, Caitlin Laws came on our team in, in 2010 and we started to build um, 
uh, you know, and, and learn from our past and started to build trying to get to 2014. And, you know, at that time, I remember thinking this might be my last quad. Obviously, I went one more quad after that. But, uh, you know, and then then the Olympic trials were announced to be in Winnipeg, which is was our home city. And it, it that just kind of, I don't know, it, I think in my mind, when I look back at it, it kind of gave maybe a little bit extra motivation, like the opportunity to play in our large, you know, NHL arena here in Winnipeg um, and to play our Olympic trials in there. So uh, we were ready. We were prepared. We used the crowd to our advantage. And um, I remember the day that we are playing our final, it wasn't until 630 at night. So we had all day, like we had, we had, uh, I think a 30 or 40 minute practice at the arena earlier in the day. Um, But I remember all day just having these butterflies in my stomach. I was so nervous and I was so excited, but it was an excited nervous where I was, I just wanted to get out on the ice. Like I was more ready to play that game than I had ever been for any other game in my entire life. And I was just, I I was like, get me out on the ice. Like I just could not wait to get on the ice. (laughs) And you know what? It was the game of my life. I played 99%, um, contributed to my team, winning that game. And uh, I just remember being so elated to be an Olympian. Like we, I think we, someone might have even said that right after we won. Like we're Olympians. Like we're Olympian. Nobody can, doesn't matter what we do with the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Nobody can take that away from us. Like we are Olympians for life. Like how cool. Like it was just it was so surreal at the moment and it was so special because you know like we're our home hometown crowd uh we got on that podium they surprised us with canada jackets uh and then i actually remember um the girl who sang the uh national anthem during that closing ceremony was actually a fellow olympian from winnipeg uh michelle sawatsky yeah michelle sawatsky she competed on the Canadian volleyball team at the 96 uh, Atlanta games. And uh, she, she's a very, uh, very talented musician as well. And so she sang the national anthem. And I remember feeling like that was special because now, you know, this fellow Olympian had, had, uh, had inducted you into the club. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, really. It was kind of like that. And then I just remember we went to, you know, the patch afterwards, like where there's kind of the social gathering for curling and we got up on stage. It was so exciting. And then I, I just, you know, sometimes we, I think forget about that, that time where we actually became Olympians because then we of course went on to win the gold medal a couple of months later. uh, And that started to kind of overshadow the fact that we had actually won the trials at home in Winnipeg and how special that was. What you guys did in Sochi, I mean, it just seems to be one level on top of the other, you know, because uh, as much as we could just say, OK, you were gold medalist. I mean, you broke history at the same time because you guys went undefeated to go on to win that gold medal, which really had never been done before. And uh, I think still to this day, you know, when you're talked about, it's the undefeated gold medalist. Uh, obviously, you know, in order to even get to a gold medal match, you know, you have to have very few losses. But at what point did you start to even realize, hey, we haven't lost anything? And, and did that ever even clue into you, you know, oh, we could actually set two records here. You know, we could be undefeated and win a gold medal. During that time, that never, I don't think it ever crossed my mind. I don't remember it ever crossing my mind. I, I don't think, 
it was that it was either after the round robin or even or even maybe just after we won the gold medal i do remember jen saying you guys you know how they show you the fonts on the bottom of the tv and it and when someone breaks a record it says or like <laughs> olympic record she goes that's us like we broke <laughs> like olympic record like she goes that's that's always going to be us and the thing with that too is that nobody unless they add teams to the Olympics for the women's curling, nobody can ever break that. Yeah. Like nobody can ever break that. Um, they could tie it, um, but no one technically could ever break that. And so I do remember her saying that and, and thinking, oh yeah, I never, I didn't really think about, you know, I didn't really think about that and and what that meant or anything. And, you know, I, I don't remember thinking that at all through the games. I, the funny thing is I, I look back and I, I know we had a couple of extra end games and we had, um, you know, some, some close games there or whatever. There some nail but biters I, in there, yeah. <laughs> but when I look back at the event as a whole, I only remember being worried twice and they were both in the gold medal game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the, the Swedish team that we played was putting some pressure on us. And, uh, you know, Caitlin and I were both struggling a little bit uh, with a few things. So, it you know, that was the only time that I remember feeling worried or concerned that this was not going to work out. So when I look at that and I think, wow, like we were in a really sort of comfortable, somewhat comfortable position, like that I just always had that belief that we were we were going to be able to win that particular game or that we were going to be able to make it to the playoffs or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, as we went on. And, I mean, we had a skip that was playing lights out for, I don't know, a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the crowd is something I kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, you're, you're used to some crazy crowds, you know, in uh, Manitoba, I guess anywhere in Canada, really. Uh, but uh, I do remember at the time in Sochi, a, a very big deal may, being made about how big the crowds were for curling and how crazy they kind of were. I mean, was the Sochi crowd different than what you've experienced in you know other countries away from Canada? Yeah, they were different. I mean, yeah, we're, we were certainly used to the noise and, and that type of thing. But the difference was that the lack of understanding about the game itself mm-hmm. <laughs> and so often there were shots being cheered that you wouldn't normally cheer for yeah. and then there were um you know misses that were happening that were that were being cheered cheered for that typically you wouldn't like so it was just we you kind of had to adjust to that especially when the russian teams were playing because you know they just cheered for anything that the russians did yeah um but the, the strategy in curling sometimes um, allows you to have an end where there's no points scored. And so a team might just throw their rock away or throw it through the, the target because they don't want to, to score a point. And the Russian fans would think that that was a miss, whereas that was what they were actually trying to do. So it was just like we kind of had to adjust to that. But the fact that there was people there and the crowd was there and they were watching and they were engaged like – you know whether it was right or wrong the fact that they were there and it was so noisy was awesome yeah i think it was anna sidorova she was the the russian who brought a lot of the crowds in right but at the same time you could say you know i you know i helped to educate these new fans i brought these new fans into the sport and they got to see the best play yeah and that's 100 percent what it is especially in some of those countries right it's just about getting people out and getting people in the building to engage with the game and learn about it mm-hmm now, what was the moment like where you won the gold medal? 
I mean, because curling, I guess, is a little bit different. You know, obviously, there are some close moments here or there. But you probably... I guess similar to hockey can have a bit of a heads up, you know, you, we've got this in the bag. It, it's not so much down to the wire the way it would be in a race. Like, does that help you so that, you know, you don't have that moment of just complete panic. Uh, you know, you can kind of ease into it. And then this is the celebration any difference you feel. Yeah. You know, I think there are a couple of different ways like that you can win a championship in, in curling and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you examples. So our semifinal win um in the olympics came down to the wire and so in the playoff system in in curling at the olympics there's four teams that make the playoffs the number one ranked team plays the fourth ranked team and then two plays three so we were the number one ranked team played the fourth ranked team uh which was great britain and they act a lot of people thought that that would be the gold medal game so to play them in the semi was kind of a big deal uh and that came down to the final rock of the game where we had to put it really close to the middle. Uh, you know, for, for those people who don't know curling, we had to get it really close to the middle. Um, and for those who do know curling, it was a draw to the forefoot. So when that rock stopped in the forefoot and we won the game, we were just so excited because it meant we were in the gold medal game, but it also meant that we guaranteed ourselves a medal. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was huge. And it was probably some relief, but it was just so exciting to win in that, in that second, in that moment and all the emotion that came out in that moment. Then we move on to the gold medal game, which uh, yeah, like it was a little bit, a little bit sketchy Mm -hmm. in a couple of moments in that game. But what happened was that uh, in the ninth end, in, so we in ends are kind of like innings and uh in curling we play 10 ends so in the ninth end the Swedish team missed and we actually what we call stole a couple of points so we were up three points going into the final end and that was a a reasonably good lead at that time with the rules that we had in place so we were pretty confident, I think, at that time that we were going to win the gold medal. And it was just sort of a matter of, of you know, uh, going through the motions of mm-hmm. making sure that we were eliminating our opposition's rocks in that, in that final end. So that celebration was a little bit different because it, it was like we already kind of knew that we were going to win, but we couldn't necessarily celebrate it because it wasn't, you know, necessarily appropriate. So mm-hmm. we, we kind of had to, to wait and so when that final rock came down and we won, the the emotion didn't explode quite the same way. Like it was still there. We were, you know, screaming, hugging, yelling, et cetera. But it was a little bit different because the pressure was different in that very moment because we figured that we'd already won. So there certainly is a little bit of difference, but still winning. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know which way is better. Like it's exciting to win it on last rock, mm-hmm. but it's kind of nice to have that padding of points too. Yeah. So <laughs> you want to feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it any way I can get it. <laughs> now uh, in Winnipeg here, I mean, we've had other Olympians who've come back. We've had, you know, great cups and stuff like that, but uh, I don't remember any other time outside of maybe when the blue bombers won the great cup was it a year or two ago where there was as much fanfare of like an athlete coming home after a championship. And what was the experience like coming back afterwards? Because this was all over the news. I mean, I think I even remember, wasn't there like uh, people at the airport there to greet you? I mean, it, it was like celebrities coming home. I mean, what was that like? 
Yeah, and you know, I've 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 often looked back at that and and thought, well, why were we any different from you know the many other Olympians and and medalists that came before us? And I think one of the big things is that, well, first of all, curling gets a lot of publicity here in in Manitoba uh, and and in Canada in general. Uh, so I think that was part of it. I think the other part of it is a lot of Olympians that are from Manitoba have to go out of province Mm -hmm. and centralize with their teams or with their programs in order to get to the Olympics. So they go to Calgary or they go to Vancouver, they go to Montreal or Toronto, whatever it is, they have to centralize somewhere else in order to achieve that dream. Whereas with curling, we can live where we were born and raised. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that there was an aspect of that to it is that people saw us out in the community and I mean we had you know a reasonable amount of fanfare probably prior to that because we'd won a number number of Scotties championships and and had a lot of media coverage but uh it was certainly on another level when we won the Olympics and to come home to that and I do think that's partly because we live and train in Winnipeg and not most other Olympians don't do that Mm -hmm. so when we came home it was I remember we landed in Winnipeg I think it was like maybe 9 30 or 10 o'clock at night there was um one of the news stations from winnipeg was broadcasting their whole newscast from the winnipeg airport they had the red carpet rolled out there was 300 like literally red carpet rolled out for us um there was like 300 people there kids that were up late and the funny thing was is that in Winnipeg that night it was like minus 45 degrees celsius Mm -hmm. it was so cold and yet all these people came out they brought their kids that should have been in bed they had you know like I said the news the news people were there like it took us over two hours to get out of the airport that night um I don't somebody grabbed our bags for us because we couldn't even make it to the uh you know the carousel to get our bags because there's so many people that wanted to meet and greet it was amazing it was so so cool and so special to have that opportunity it was it was really really cool you're you're completely right i hadn't even thought about that you know i uh, i talked to john montgomery you'll see him over my shoulder here um but uh last summer you know i was excited i'm like okay here's a manitoba athlete and his story about manitoba is like yeah when i got the call that i would be on the skeleton team i was standing you know in the polo park parkade and then after that i was in alberta and i never came back you know but you get to come back here. You get to train here. I mean, you, you guys, your faces are a mural on the side of a curling club that, you know, I used to walk past every single day. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, the mural is beautiful on the side of our curling club. And and I and then I think, too, when we returned home from the Olympics, there we were at the grocery store or mm-hmm. at the mall or at the, <laughs> back at the curling club, right? Like, it was like... And so I think people just almost felt like and and we in curling we often get people say oh I feel like I know you because you're on my tv all the time Mm -hmm. and so then when they see us at the you know shopping for you know groceries three weeks after winning the olympics it's just almost mind-boggling to them and uh but I also think it's a connection for our community uh to have to us uh, now you already touched on Pyeongchang and uh, not being able to make that. I mean, but that those games were also historic because it was the first time I, I can't remember what it was called. Is it called pairs or mixed? Uh, you know, uh, two, mixed doubles. Mixed doubles. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, Caitlin Laws would go on to uh, win. Do do? Oh, I guess 
okay, <laughs> the, uh, the next Olympics there. Uh, but I, I only remember watching the, the qualifying for the finals. So uh, was that a, something you competed in or you tried out for? Or did you even have a thought about doing that? Yeah, so with the mixed doubles, um, it, it's something I think that uh, it's evolving and sort of uh, growing on um, how to get people involved and how to sort of have our best players be able to play mixed doubles as well. So there's some challenges in there with that. So leading up to the Pyeongchang games, uh, what ha- what happened was that anybody who, either any of the players on either of the men's or women's teams that won the Olympic trials, the like the four-person Olympic trials, were not going to be allowed to also compete in mixed doubles because our basically our association decided that um, they didn't feel like uh, that made sense in terms of the fatigue that it might uh, cause or the, you know, having to focus on one thing and then switch to focus on the other thing. And so they had made that decision. So anybody who won in the four players, um, they they were not allowed to compete in the mixed doubles. So that left some of the mixed doubles players without partners at the time and so those mixed doubles players that qualified for the olympic trials the mixed doubles olympic trials were then allowed to ask another top player to come and join them so what happened with me was um you know i hadn't played a ton of mixed doubles but uh reed carruthers a fellow manitoban uh his partner was joanne courtney who played with rachel homan's team and rachel homan's team had won the women's Mm -hmm. olympic trials so Joanne was not going to be able to play in the mixed doubles Olympic trials. So Reed asked if I would step in and play. And I was like, yeah, another chance to maybe go to the Olympics. Like, you know, this would be great. So, you know, Reed and I started doing a lot of work and practice. Like, and, and that's the thing is, is, you know, in your, in your four person game, you're literally spending like three or four years working up to those Olympic trials, but the mixed doubles game, it's a little bit different because there's less competition, although it's getting better um and there's just less focus on it like more most play most top players are still focused on their four-person team so we did what we could in that short period of time and uh and you know what Caitlin Laws and John Morris who ended up winning the gold medal in Pyeongchang they were in the same boat like they didn't have much time to play together they hadn't spent that time on the ice together so it was just kind of the way it was for that year um and I Reed's a good friend of mine and I had a great time playing with him and you know we had you know we did we did fairly well I think we made the final did we make the final eight maybe because there was a there was a lot more teams in the mixed doubles event but um that was a bit disappointing too but you know to not have that chance because boy I would have loved to mm-hmm. you know another have, first have, yeah to be the first but to have that opportunity and I really wanted to win it for Reed mm-hmm. um you know he just I just thought he was a, think he's such a great guy and uh, I just wanted to win it for Reed, but it just didn't work out for us. So, <laughs> uh, now you did choose to step away competitively, but I mean, to tell us what you're up to now, because now you've transitioned into the coach role. So I'm um, potentially another trip to the Olympics at some point in the near future. Who knows? I mean, uh, how did you, uh, transition into that? And then, uh, I guess, you know, how's it been going as a coach now? Yeah, well, I, I, I did coach, um, last year I coached my niece's team, uh, who actually competed against for years as well, <laughs> which is difficult. Um, but I, I did, I did coach them for a short period of time, but I, I'm, I didn't commit to them for a long, a uh, longer period of time. Um, because I felt like I was in sort of my own transition period of trying to sort out 
what I want to do when I grow up sort of say. Yeah. So, um, you know, for people who, uh, who know a lot about sport and, uh, you know, athletes and stuff often, um, retiring from your sport or stepping away from that elite play can often pose a lot of challenges. And there's a, a very, uh, significant transition period there for that, that retirement phase. And I have certainly felt a lot of those. So I stepped away from the game in 2018. The following year, I was still the alternate or spare player for Team Jones. Uh, so I, I accompanied them to a couple of events and I uh, filled in at a couple of events. But I also at the time got on with um, our, one of our national broadcasters here as a curling analyst. So I was doing some curling analyst work, which was, was really nice to see the game from that standpoint and also uh, still be around the game. And then I did the little bit of coaching, um, you know, and, and I, I filled in on my niece's team for one of the girls that was uh, pregnant. So I, I've been playing a little bit mm -hmm. and then yeah, I was doing the analyst stuff. And now with when COVID hit, obviously that changed a lot of things. Um, and I, I have actually gone back to school and I'm in university um, taking kinesiology. And my plan is to get into a master's program for mental performance so oh, that wow. I can use my experience, um, my experience and then layer on my education to help other athletes in various um challenges and transition periods in their in their careers so uh yeah so i i've kind of been dabbling in a whole variety of things since stepping away from from that top level play but what i do know is that i love the sport and i love being involved in the sport and it's sort of where my community is and i want to keep that connection it's it's always great when we talk to these athletes who have retired that there's so many great opportunities for things you can do afterwards, you know, uh, whether it be commentary or, you know, speaking engagements and things like that. What's really crazy to me is, uh, what was the thing you said you went back to study? I can never pronounce it. Kinesiology. That's, I've got a nephew who's going to be uh, uh, studying that in the fall. So, hey, you could be a classmate of my nephew. <laughs> if you are, yeah. tell him I said hi at all. <laughs> you might talk to him before I do. Uh, we just have a, a quick uh, fire final series of questions here we're going to get to. But just before we ask that, we, we always have to ask, do you keep your Olympic medal somewhere special? I wouldn't necessarily call it special, but uh, it's in a safe. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we have a safe here. I, I don't know. Like, I've sometimes thought, oh, it would be nice to display it. But it's just so it feels so valuable at the same time that you don't want to just necessarily have it out in the open. But I, I don't know. Like, I know. I know some people have more of a connection to the actual metal than others, but uh, for right now it lives in my safe. And when I do get to take it out because I'm showing somebody or making an appearance, I, I think it's pretty special and I have a hard time believing that it's mine yeah. sometimes. I can um, imagine. And, yeah. And yet at the same time, I'm thankful that they give it to you because um, it reminds me of what, what we accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, just uh, for our final series of questions here, uh, I don't even know if this is something you've been exposed to before because we actually borrow this from Team Canada's website. Uh, before okay. every Olympics, they will give a series of questions, some of them sports-related, some of them not, uh, to the athletes. So they literally fill out by hand. So we're going off of what's handwritten by other athletes. Did you ever do these my name is questionnaires, whether you just got on the site or not? 
No, I don't think I have. Oh, no. good. Well, I love when we get to uh, be the first for these two. Uh, okay, so uh, this is you know just off the top of your head. Some of them silly, some of them not. Uh, first of all, my favorite Olympic moment is... This could be your own or somebody else's. Oh, yeah, probably. Oh, favorite. Uh, probably the draw to the forefoot in the, I'll say, the draw to the forefoot in the semifinal to guarantee a medal. Oh, good. I, I always like it when it's somebody's own, too. <laughs> uh, if I could have any superpower, it would be. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Unbelievable patience. <laughs> oh, as uh, a. F- the first thought that I'm thinking is like, God, it would be nice to have just unlimited patience when you have a child. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, I would say fly, but now that you've mentioned that, that's my new wannabe superpower. I've got the twins that I got to deal with here. Um, <laughs> my favorite sports movie is. Oh, um, oh, what was the name of it? Oh, we used to watch this all the time, our junior team. It was the. Oh, was it called the Cutting Edge or something? It was oh, like the a ice figure... skating one. Yeah, the ice skating mm. one that almost is like the Battle of the Blades that they have now, where it's like they. It was a hockey player who ended up pairing up with a figure skater and stuff like that. And yeah, mm-hmm. I used to watch that one all the time. Yeah, we we have that on our list to cover before the next uh, Winter Olympics. Just kind of do a one off on that. Uh, did you ever see Men with Brooms? We actually covered that on another one of our podcasts, the the Curly Movie. What are your thoughts on Men with Brooms? Yeah, I did see it. Um, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I, it'd be funny to watch it again. But you know what? I just thought it was great that there was, uh, you know, a movie done about our sport. Like, mm-hmm. whether you liked the movie or not, it brought attention and at times continues to bring attention um, to our sport. And and with the bit of star power that it had yeah. with... Um, Paul Gross. With, his, pardon me? Paul Gross. Well, yeah, Paul and the other guy, the older guy. Oh, Leslie Nielsen, yeah. Leslie Nielsen, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, so I, I just think it was it was great. I, I would love to watch it again, actually, just to, yeah, just to see. This one, I'm curious if you have it, because, you know, we haven't talked to curlers before. I don't know if you do this, but my favorite pump-up song is. Do you have any, like, pump-up music that you use to get, get into game mode? Um... Y- no, nothing specific. Um, probably had more of that when I was younger, and then as I got as I got older and kind of got to know myself better as a, as a competitor and stuff. I I don't know. I just didn't, never really wanted to specifically have headphones on. Like if there was music playing, I was okay with it. But mm-hmm. really, anything that got me moving, like yeah. any sort of like dance or dance type music or anything that just kind of had a good beat that made me want want to move, that would be what it is. So maybe not Radiohead. That wouldn't be ideal for no. <laughs> getting pumped up. We've never had no. Radiohead answered. That's funny. No. Uh, my <laughs> most recent TV show that I binge watches. This is how I get my recommendations when I'm on vacation. So this is great. <laughs> Shit's Creek. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you watched it yet? Oh, absolutely. I haven't oh, finished the, the final season though. I didn't have a chance to watch that, so I'm I'm excited to catch up on that. Yeah, Shit's Creek definitely would recommend that. It's uh, awesome, awesome, and a, and a Canadian show. So uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my least favorite foods are coconut and black licorice. Oh really? <laughs> Black licorice, that's a, that's a, that's one that I, I don't know if it's been answered on here, but I know a ton of people who just, they can't stand black licorice. I mean, I, I don't mind it. It wouldn't be my first choice, but yeah, it's, it's not a popular one, is it? No, no. And coconut, I can taste the least, a little bit amount of coconut in it <laughs> and I can't stand it. My wife also hates coconut, so she's going to love listening to this one. 
Uh, my favorite chip flavor is. Ooh, uh, all dressed. All dressed. Now I'm taking this uh, questionnaire from Natalie Spooner, who is on the the Sochi hockey team. Uh, she said ketchup, so uh, I think that's that's kind of the the black licorice of chip flavors. But I mean, if you're Canadian, you're at least exposed to it. Yeah, yeah, I do like ketchup as well. Yeah, dill pickle would be my number one any day, but all dress has always been my number two. So I'm happy with that answer. <laughs> Uh, if I weren't an athlete, then I would be. Oh, uh, wow. That is a tough question, actually. Um, I'm going to say that I would probably be some sort of like television journalist reporter only because that's what I initially went to school for Mm -hmm. um, and worked as for a while until curling sort of took over. So I, 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 and I, still have a connection to it, I guess, to some degree. So I'd probably be somewhere in that realm, that realm of, uh, of stuff. Uh, people usually describe me as, how do people usually describe it? How do your teammates describe you? What's, what's, what's your position as the team, the team, uh, second? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably, uh, chatty, outgoing, <laughs> chatty, outgoing, fun, honest, loyal everything we look for in a podcast guest so that's perfect (laughs) uh this one's the the final question natalie spooner has all his drawing pictures which if you have a chance check it out there's some hilarious pictures the athletes have to draw in here but we're going to give you one which uh appears on almost all the questions here uh which is the greatest olympian of all time is and feel free to answer yourself no i mean i have a hard time not pointing to like Michael Phelps or like Usain Bolt, mm. you know, like especially Michael Phelps. I mean, who wins 25 gold medals? <laughs> you know what I mean? But at the same time, like, you know, that that's a swimming is a discipline where you can compete yeah. in a number of races, right? Like that's the thing with um sports like curling is that we only have well now we have two disciplines, you know. So um yeah, I, I I would almost say Michael Phelps because like, <laughs> like it's the most common answer. Yeah, exactly. It's it's inhuman. It's it's yeah. not right. <laughs> uh, Jill, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here today and to be able to discuss curling for the first time ever. Uh, you know, I'm hoping you're going to be able to enjoy the spring weather out there since we're actually experiencing spring weather right now a little bit earlier than normal. And uh, if you wanted to, is anything you want to plug as far as people following you on social media, where can they look for you? Uh, yeah, my social media handles are all uh, Jill Officer. Um, I think it's lowercase on Instagram and at Jill Officer on, on Twitter. Um, yeah, other than that, thanks for having me. And we look forward to seeing you again at some Olympics in the future, even if it's on the coaching side. (laughs) Thanks. And huge thanks to Jill for doing the show with us here today and being able to introduce the great sport of curling to our listeners. And we're really excited as we're getting closer and closer to our 100th episode. We're hoping to be able to crack 100 episodes before the uh, the Tokyo Games, obviously. I'm sure we're going to get there long before there. Uh, but uh, this is a bit of a mini-series because we have another curler coming on, which I believe we even mentioned uh, who our next guest is in that interview, even though we didn't officially reveal who it is. But next week, we're going to be talking to Mike Harris, who competed all the way back 
back in the first ever Olympic Games that hosted curling in Nagano. Uh, and he went on to win the silver medal in Nagano. So that'll be a great interview. You can stay tuned for that next week. Uh, as well, listen to all our other recent interviews that we've had. Uh, last week, there was a great chat with uh, Brianna Walker, who uh, is going to be competing in the first ever mono bobsled. And as I already said, we have uh, several big interviews lined up over the next couple of weeks uh, as we get closer and closer to our 100th episode. And the 100th episode, we're going to have everybody back on, myself, Ben, Jared, everybody, and eventually go all the way up to the Tokyo Games, which is going to be our main event for this year. Thank you for listening, everybody. Make sure to uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you find your shows. And of course, join us next week when we speak to Mike Harris from the curling silver medalist in Nagano. 